know, watching my grandparents and watching local politicians and watching the state versus the city sometimes, I got an understanding the importance of entrepreneurship and money in my community and how my community was strong entrepreneurially, that, that it provided jobs for my community and provided um, greater stability and resources for the, for the wider community. Hi, I'm Nelson Murray, and this is Talking Squarely. In this series, we bring together independent business owners to have frank discussions and share their perspectives on some of the most pressing issues impacting their lives and livelihoods. Today, we have the privilege of sitting down with Michael Render, more commonly known by his stage name, Killer Mike, to discuss a topic that he's dedicated much of his life advocating, black entrepreneurship and empowerment. We'll discuss the ways the black economy has evolved, the challenges it faces, and the strategies that governments, communities, and individuals can use to push things forward, even in the face of a health and social crisis. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Let's just dive right in here. We have so many different topics that we'd love to get your thoughts on. But first, I think, you know, even though there's a, probably a very small chance that our audience is not familiar with you, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself, if you would. Tell us a little bit about who you are, and how you describe yourself. I'm Shaina's husband, and one half of the group run the jewel. <laughs> I'm a dad of four amazing human beings, Malika, Naya, um, Mikey, who's a 13-year-old girl, and Pony Boy, who's an 18-year-old um, young man. And I was raised a working-class Black kid in a strong Black community in Atlanta. I, um, I've grown to be an an activist, an organizer in my life. Um, my dream was to be a rapper. I got it. And then, you know, a lot of cool responsibility came with it too. I'm a business owner. And um, I try my best to be someone where my name is said in my city. The response will be one of, of, of respect. Well, we certainly want to touch on, on both the city and the business aspect of your life today. We use the word at Square, we use the word entrepreneur quite often. And I'm curious, Given the number of things that you were involved in artistically and professionally, does that word apply to you or how, how do you sort of self-identify professionally? Yeah, I mean, I'm an, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I mean, I am, a, I am a product in that I make music, you know what I'm saying? So Killer Mike, the musician, has been the cornerstone or the bedrock for Killer Mike, the entrepreneur. But I was an entrepreneurial before music. I was a kid that cut uh, cut grass, you know, and college, I was a kid that sold grass, you know what I mean? But, but my, um, what I, what I knew was th there's an old adage that Bill Gates said, if you want to get something done, you know, easily or effectively ask the laziest person in the room, cause they're going to figure out the easiest way to do it. Well, the first time my mom gave me 20 bucks to cut grass, I found the younger kid who thought it was exciting to get 10 bucks. I learned in my lawnmower, he cut my mom's grass so good, I booked us another four yards. I didn't have to cut any grass. I made about, you know, I made about 60 bucks. Um, so I, I guess I've been entrepreneuring my efforts because my mother was, my mother was an artist by nature. She was, she was a florist. So, you know, every day your, your job is to make rooms beautiful with live or artificial flowers and to make people happy, you know, but rather than just be an artist, she owned her own business first. Um, with a with a woman uh, with a white woman named Jean, they had a floral company called Drew Jean. So I saw my mother be very entrepreneurial throughout my whole life, and I saw my grandfather do extra stuff like 
My grandfather um, was formally educated until third grade. He drove dump trucks and worked in a brickyard, but he did other stuff like for the black man who owned two, three dump trucks up the street, he drove for him on the weekends. He um, also would bring liquor or moonshine back from his hometown and, and sell that at a premium cost to his friends here. So I learned that you always should do something extra. And I knew that I didn't want to work um, very hard. And my lastly, my friend Robert Hicks, who's played for the Buffalo Bills, we've been friends since kindergarten. He said, Kiel, I tell people, even when you was younger, you was going to have to figure out opening your own business because you just never liked listening to people. He said, we had a job, and we did. We worked at Chuck E. Cheese together. He said, if they asked us to do something, your first response was, why? <laughs> so I, um, I I pretty much figured out very young that I'm going to have to be an entrepreneur because I don't take orders very well, and um, I'm, I'm lazy, and um, you know I like money. So that, that's an interesting mix. You know, a lot of what you uh, are talking about has to do with the city of Atlanta. And I, I want to touch, before we even move into um, you being a business owner and how you sort of got started professionally, can you talk to me about the significance of Atlanta? What does Atlanta mean to you in your life and, and, and professionally? Let me qualify that. I, was, I did an interview with Bloomberg magazine about a week or two ago, and I called back after the interview. But I realized I'm talking to financial people, bankers, capitalists, people, stock market people, people, financiers. I said, I need you guys to understand what I've learned from Atlanta is when black communities and white communities set aside prejudice and bigotry, and they focused on being the strongest economic communities they can be. So the Atlanta community um, has been a successful black community and successive perspective because Atlanta has the you know number three Fortune 500 companies of any city in the country and Georgia's a state. Atlanta has had a long, prosperous black middle class and black working class. Um, and with that said, we have the largest wealth gap, much like America. We mirror America in a lot of ways, right? Except we're chocolate. It's a, it's a black city. There was a, there was a riot in the early 1900s in Atlanta. And I, I think four to six black men were killed. Um, and, that, and, and at that time, it just said a deal had to be struck between black and white Atlanta. And, you know, essentially blacks got the living and business districts of what was all, what is Auburn Avenue in Edgewood. My wife and I own one of our shops in Edgewood Avenue. I'm very proud to be in that district uh, because it had long since been forgotten, but it was once a black dominator and powerhouse. People like Alonzo Harden, who had the largest black insurance company, Atlanta Life Insurance, who started with a barbershop. Um, he, he was there. Um, John Wesley Dobbs, who was a business and financial genius and the unofficial mayor of Black Atlanta, um, was there. He also was the grandfather of Maynard Jackson, the first Black mayor. So Maynard, not only being a politician, but having had a grandfather that was a businessman, understood the importance of, for our community, the importance of a mastery of both. Maynard understood, carrying in that, that I have to put um, I have to put the greater good above bigotry um, and, and self-interest. He went into the mayorship and he demanded that 29 to 30 percent of city contracts be black and minority development. So he made sure that they were able to participate in, in the economic prosperity that was coming. And that went directly into that community. Well, how does that affect you, Mike? You grew up working class. Well, I'm a working class kid. 
I grew up in the Collier Heights, but I grew up on the edges. What's the Collier Heights? The Collier Heights is an area that blacks gentrified. Who stayed there? Billy McKinney, Cynthia McKinney, the King family moved there, the King parents. Um, Herman Russell himself lived there. And because of that diverse and even um, even middle class up income that was in the end bed of my community, our schools were better. Therefore, I went to Collier Heights Elementary, which was a great school. I went to Frederick Douglass High School, which was like going to a black college, 8th through 12th grade. And then I went on to Morehouse. Had it not been for the economic prosperity of that community, even though I'm a working class kid, and essentially we just serve as a buffer between that community and, and the rougher communities and housing projects, I got to reap the benefits because the people who lived there were socially responsible enough to live in community. They were responsible enough to make sure they invested in the education of kids that weren't their own even because they were looking 20 years ahead. When Maynard did that, 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 that mandate for Atlanta, he wasn't thinking about 1973. He was thinking about 1993. So by the time you got to 1993, when I'm graduating high school, you have a radically different Atlanta. Um, the Herman Russell Company has has by now built the skyscraper. I don't think there's a there's a there's a cap on my imagination because I'm seeing blacks move in from all over the country and the world come here and start successful businesses. Everything from the Face Records to Noontime Records to Alex Get One being the party promoter, all of that um, from the music side blossoms out of out of Maynard's thinking and and the marriage of not only black politics and business, but black social money because juke joints, nightclubs, um, uh, um, strip clubs, all of this, all of this connected Atlanta in a way that was radically different. So we've seen even more economic opportunity that's followed us through every mayor. Now, the black community definitely got enriched, got jobs. There's a true black working class and middle class. But subsequently, it wasn't just like the special favor helped that uh, our community it made the greater market better because if I wanted best barbecue or what I thought was the best barbecue, I wasn't limited to North Fulton. I had other barbecue restaurants I could drive to the South Fulton that brought money and uh, to, brought money and tax money to that base, which enriched that community. So the wider community got better because the because the the dollar in the community, the black community, became stronger. So if I wanted to open ten restaurants, I can open my ten restaurants. But the people I'd be buying some of my supplies from would be farmers out of West Georgia. It would also be the white-owned um, baking company. So all these businesses are benefiting. So for me, what Atlanta showed me is that cooperation and, and, and individual responsibility in economics and group economics can help me as an individual, can help my community, but also help the wider community. So these are just lessons that I picked up, you know, when watching my grandparents, from watching local politicians and watching the state versus the city sometimes, I got an understanding of the importance of entrepreneurship and money in my community and how my community was strong entrepreneurially, that, that it provided jobs for my community and provided um, greater stability and resources for the for the wider community. Because if I'm a plumber and I charge you $100 less, you know, just because I look like you, you don't care at the point you got to get your toilet fixed, your prejudice and bigotry, bigotry kind of goes out the window. And you're like, shit, this is a better deal. It's 250 bucks with the call. My plumber, I love to only pay 150. Well, it, and a lot of what we want to talk about today is the significance of entrepreneurship in the black community. And, and you're talking right now about the significance and value of keeping dollars in that community. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that idea and maybe um, how Atlanta in particular it has managed to do that well or maybe not? And how other parts of the country are sort of approaching that differently. Well, we I think that um, we've gotten away from some of the things that we used to do. My, as Atlanta's a black city, I can go to black 
um, restaurants. I can go to black clubs. I can go to a black car dealership and buy 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 a car. You know, my house is mortgaged through a black bank. And with that said, I don't have the luxuries that my grandparents had. Now that's an odd statement because my grandparents were born in 1922 and 1932. So my grandfather would have been 98 right now, but he grew up at a time where segregation or what is honestly apartheid forced the black community to deal and to depend on one another. So when he got to Atlanta, um, you have black doctors, black dentists, black grocery stores. You have everything in America there is a black version of because the black community insulated itself from outside forces that would have been hostile forcing their dollar to turn. My grandfather often said one of the worst things that happened was um, integration. He didn't say desegregation, but he said when we integrated, we integrated our dollar right out of our community, right? Um, now, desegregation, you get the same social rights um, that you deserved, and rightfully deserved, all Americans deserve, but you still would have kept your dollar in your community and other dollars would have come into your community because you're compete, you're, com you're allowed to be a fair competitor in, in capitalism at that point. So if you're a black builder, it, your chances of getting a contractor increase because now you have to be considered fairly, which is why you have an airport in Atlanta with over 50% of the vendors are, um, are black or people of color of some type. And that is a significant thing. For me, the importance of it or the importance of turning that black dollar is if our dollar stays in our community as long as Asian, white, and Jewish um, dollars, which is, I think is about 28 um, 22 days and like 20 days amongst those respective groups, then our community is stronger because that dollar gets to enrich and empower as it moves around. So the $10 out, the $20 I was paid, I paid another kid $10. We provided a service for five more yards. You know what I mean? That, that moved a hundred dollars around It enriched these kids. I then took some of that money. I went to the black teen club and had fun. I spent, I spent money with, you know, what I thought was a black company, Jordan, but I also spent money with Patrick Ewan too. You know what I mean? On his shoes. So it enabled me to have all the fun I wanted without being a burden on my mother. It, it enabled my mother to teach me work ethic. If that dollar or the opportunity to make it wasn't there, I don't learn the basic economics. Um, my grandparents don't, my grandparents still open me a bank account, but I never get in the habit of feeding my bank account. I believe if we learn how to turn our dollar in our community for weeks and months versus just six hours, I think that there's an argument that we can strengthen our economic independence, which helps the wider economic community as well. Can an individual who wants to start their own business, quote unquote, pick themselves up by their bootstraps? Or do they need support from local or federal governments in order to make that happen? Not only need, but deserve. I think there has to, to be talk before then and after of, of federal funding. Federal, the feds fund every other business. They saved the shit out of our banks a few years ago. They saved American car companies, you know. So I, I, I think that on a small and local business and medium-sized business level, absolutely, absolutely, we deserve. And I think that it's it, it's not welfare because when you give something to entrepreneurs, Ruth Chris didn't get $20 million doing COVID because it was welfare. They got it because they wanted to make sure they could furlough workers, handle operations, restructure themselves, and come back and be a badass steak restaurant. Well, my homegirl, Ruth, and her boyfriend, Chris, want to do the same thing with their steak restaurant. And if, if, if they're a medium business, they deserve those considerations as well, because another steak restaurant is better for the customers in the marketplace because it means there's more competition. You got to understand when you're talking about black entrepreneurship, 
many times you're only talking about first to second generation. You look at a successful company like Gucci. Gucci is a billion dollar company. And they're acquired by a bigger house. It's a it's a it's a it's a global brand. Gucci started off as a father and a family making fine leather goods to sell to tourists. Louis Vuitton started off as a trunk maker where it was considered crass um, and, and not classy to put um, LV on trunks. And, and they, they started that way. So when I look at these companies, I look at myself. Michael Render is the first in line um, of entrepreneurship for this generation within my family. And my job is to hopefully set up a entrepreneurial foundation in which Michael Render, my daughter, will take the reins of that and grow it. So absolutely, we deserve some help because 250 years um, and then finally being saying, okay, guys, now you guys are free and you get seven years of freedom. And then there's about 80, 90 years of apartheid called Jim Crow. All of that has held us back from fairly participating in the entrepreneurial um, marketplace. Now, and people may hear that and say, well, that, I didn't do that. Yeah, yeah, you didn't do that, but you've benefited from it. If your parents were able to leave you a piece of property based on your grandparents serving in World War One or Two and whatever GI bills benefited them, black soldiers were denied that. That's one of the biggest transfers of wealth that happens within every family. Um, yet uh, many black people have been denied that opportunity. So I believe that just like the federal um, agents had to come into the South to make sure that we could vote and to make sure our communities weren't burned down, which later happened in places like Tulsa. I think that there are and should be, especially if um, especially if we do ever seriously talk about reparations in this country. One of the things that, that comes to mind, especially because of the centuries of systemic oppression that you're talking about with regard to Black America, a lot of folks just have doubts about starting a business in general because it's hard. I mean, you 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 are in a position to know. It, it's hard to be your own boss. Hard is an understatement. I can remember my wife telling our kids, you know, we work incredibly hard not to work. And what they weren't understanding at the time is that, you know, I think the two younger ones understand more. We do 80, 90, 100 hour weeks. At times we could pay other people to just because we want the knowledge of how to do it. We learn how to run a barbershop the hard way by opening a barbershop. With, with without prior knowledge. And it took us years of kind of getting beat up and kicked around and say, why isn't this working for us to find um, mentorship? Like Mr. Dutley's, who owns Dutley's, who was the first person to tell us, you're not going to be able to do a real barbershop on booth rent. You're going to have to switch to commission. And here's why. Um, he was the first person to tell us, you're going to need your own products. Barbershops are not just about cutting hair. Look at the art of shaving. That is a product line masquerading as a shaving parlor. And I'm like, shit like you you never and it forced me to look at myself in the business we were building radically different so rather than look at my neighborhood barbershop as the ideal which it was fun to own a neighborhood barbershop you know we made money every week my, my wife had a cool little salary every month it wasn't worth the amount of stress exchange when we started to operate as a retail shop functioning as a barbershop everything changed you know that's when you start looking at thousands of dollars a week in retail, that's when you start to say, well, this is our percentage off commission. This is how, if our barbers have a hundred customer client base, this are our expectations to make them per year and make for us. This gives us the ability to advertise, not only via Facebook, but billboards. That's where things radically change. When I start looking at our shop, and my wife has a much better business brain than me. She's um, she's younger and from Savannah. So she, um, you know, her grandma ran a liquor house. My grandma went to church. So she, she learned money a little, a little earlier than me. 
she um she's the one who really gets it and really got it. So for me, it was just a matter of having to re to focus my perspective and say, okay, I'm an artist. I'm gonna focus on what the shops look like and the atmosphere and the vibe. But from the money perspective, she got very serious about throwing events that make room for other. Like if you're a, if you are a black coffee company, and this is a true story. So black coffee company is looking for um, places to present their wares in the marketplace. My wife does a Juneteenth event that invites black vendors to come out and essentially sit on the sidewalks in front of our barbershops and, and, and peddle their wares. Now, we get this idea because when you own a barbershop in any working class community, um, if sun falls out the back of a truck, they walk in the back of the barbershop and say, hey, we got socks today. Hey, we got um, lighters today. What we did was cut that out bring those products into our shop or in front of the shop and let you and let you sell. Um, this coffee company sold out that day. I get a call a few days later from a black developer who's building a super center of sorts in Southeast Atlanta. Say, hey, Mike, we want to put a, uh, allow a coffee shop to come here. Um, brother named Omar Ali, whose father is a brilliant businessman. And he says, um, do you know of any? And I said, I just happened to know of one. Then I got stoned and I forgot to call him back. So he called me back the next day. And he said, um, you got that coffee shop. I gave them that. I hooked him in that coffee shop up and that coffee shop is entering into that development and will be a black owned coffee shop and a black owned development service in a mixed community. And again, I say you can be black owned and serve the greater community and it could be a service to the larger community. You touched on this a little bit, especially when you mentioned the sort of inflection point when you when when you figured out. I'm going to use the phrase crack the code. That's kind of oversimplifying it. But with the barbershop, how to start making money out of it. But there had to be a point well before that where you took a leap of faith and chose to start. To You, you made a choice to be your own boss. Tell me about that. Yeah, I used to say my, my famous word was fire your boss, be a boss when I was had the grind time mixtape series. Well, um, after, after my mixtape era, I, people, I just celebrated like the anniversary of one of them. I pledge allegiance to the grind too. That record was me motivating myself out of depression and disbelief that I could do it. I pledge allegiance to the grind three landed me a, a nod, a shout out for one of the 50 best songs in Rolling Stone. And that gave me the courage to say, I'm going to keep doing music. And I said to myself, if, and when I get a chance to do music again, I'm not going to make the mistake I made as a young man. As a young man, when I was selling, you know, grass in college, I had an opportunity to leave college and do music, but I should have put myself through barber school. That's how long I wanted to own a barber shop. So when I got money to make rap music and I was making rap music and I started to make and compile um, my savings again, I discovered an opportunity via maybe Craigslist. A shop was going on sale for 6000 Now, had I been talking to the Michael of then, I would say to him, just let that shop go out of business, talk to the landlord, buy his lease, and you don't even have to pay the six grand. Just just let him run out of business. Um, but I paid the six grand sight unseen over the phone, and I walked in the room and told my wife, I just bought us a barbershop. And my wife didn't talk to me for two weeks. And she later told me it's because you bought me a shop. This is my burden. And in my mind, it was like, oh, I get this a week per chair. This is how much we'll make per month. We just keep the bills low. But there was a lot more that went into it. There was constructing, there was coding, there was these other things. But the leap of faith, the leap of faith came from my very rudimentary former grass dealer um, calculations that I know I have enough money to pay the rent for a year. I know I can keep the power and, and cost this. And I remember wanting to buy eight chairs at one time. And my wife was like, you have two barbers. You're buying two chairs at one time. And, we'll, and as we hire new barbers, we'll let that chair pay for the next chair. 
And that was some of the wisest advice that she'd given me because I took it into, I'm not going to open a shop until the first shop pays for the second, until the second pays for the third. And it, it took a slower pace, but we're now in our third shop. And in the process of setting up a plan to open up 10 shops in the next 24 months to provide proof of product to, you know, talk to some capital venture folks and get some money and take this thing regional and national. So the moment for me was, the moment for me was when I had compiled a savings that I knew I could float my building. I mean, I could float my business for one year, you know, for not for a quarter, not for just 90 days, but for one year, I said, I have to be able to do this for a year. And at the end of that year, we, 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 we brought home, we brought home profit. It was meager, but it felt, I was proud of shit. You know, it was a lot of headaches and heartache that went into it, but I was very, very proud of, of what my wife and I accomplished. A lot of this makes me think about storytelling and the power, the potential power of storytelling to inspire people. Thinking just about you, you have a Netflix series, you are developing documentaries in addition to your music. And do you think about that often? And, and if, if so, what, power do you think, what capacity do you think that storytelling plays in, let's say, the Black community to inspire people to think beyond what they might have thought was possible for their life? My prediction is Tyler Perry is going to become a billionaire. My prediction is, uh, or, or, or not, my, not, my knowledge is you don't get, uh, you don't get to be what he has become without a political class that participates in helping him secure a studio in this city. And all of that is built off storytelling. The creation of Madea has been the cornerstone of his ability to do those movies and others, which has provided the capital, the credit and the confidence from the public to make him the, the, I think the owner, the only owner of a black studio, or at least the largest, you know, in an in a all-black city. So the power of my storytelling, what it's done for me is it has it has helped people understand um, that anything and everything is possible, that a lot of times black anger and rage um, but because, because of systemic hardship is exercised through story. If I had not heard F the police, um, wh- what would I have been? If, if I had not heard Too Short say to job, a lot of people think of Too Short in particular as just a sexist and misogynist rapper who rapped about pimping, never mind that it was Pulp Fiction, essentially. We, you know, we knew Short wasn't actively pimping anything. We knew he was a rapper rapping Donald Goins and Robert Beck-like lyrics. But the significant thing about Too Short, if he were alive in those times, had less to do with that and more the fact that he always threatened to retire. He would say, tell Jive, unless they give me a million dollars, I'm retiring. Now, a million dollars sounded like a lot of money when I was 12 years old, right? But it is a lot of money. But I didn't understand that if he's asking for one, Jive probably owes him 10, or he deserves 10. And I don't think that you get, I don't think a lot of times we understand the significance of storytellers, of athletes who run and jump. If this is Rome, we are the circus. And just like there's power in, in the Senate and, and just like there's power in Caesar, just like there's power in the Roman army, there's power in those who put on a spectacle for the public because we give the public the ability to suspend disbelief. Now, usually when we think of suspending disbelief, we think of I'm going into a movie, 
I'm going to watch The Godfather, and Marlon Brando is going to become an Italian Godfather, and Michael Col- uh, Al Pacino becomes Michael Colleon. And before you know it, you're 15 minutes in, and this family is real because the emotions are real, right? The brotherly love, the anger, the ambition, all of it is real. There's another suspend disbelief, and that suspension of disbelief is my daughter, who's 13, her first president, the first person she recognized most powerful voice in the world was a black man. I never would have believed that in my lifetime, but her, the cap on her imagination is, is it never was there because her first president was Barack Obama. So I have to, I have that she was cognizant of. I have to, I have to understand that the truest power of storytelling is to get the audience from a rap perspective to suspend the disbelief of limitation and to really push for everything really push for the full Monty. That's what that's the power of an artist. Mr. Michael Render, Killer Mike, thank you so very much for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you greatly. A very special thanks to Killer Mike for his time and thoughtful insight. You can learn more about his barbershop the Swag Shop by visiting www.theswagshop.com. You've been listening to Talking Squarely, a Square production. This episode was produced by Mallory Russell, Cindy Lewis, Duchesne Ramsey, Evan Grohl, John Scarpinato, and Travis Gonzalez. Our music was composed by Jordan Wallace, with sound recording by Sorrentino Media and Jamie Cohen. I'm Nelson Murray. Thanks for listening.